This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello there. I appreciate you joining us today. I'm Joel Hilliker. You have noticed the rising food prices, the rising gas prices. You've noticed empty shelves in the grocery stores, common items that are no longer available. These really are increasingly common realities in the world today. In our first segment, we're going to look at a place where these trends are far more advanced, where there are hours-long lines to fill up your gas tank, fuel shortages causing power blackouts, drivers unable to afford shipping product, businesses that are shutting down, families struggling to feed themselves. It gives you a preview of just how bad conditions will get if they keep progressing the direction that they're going right now. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Richard Palmer about the terrible economic crisis unfolding in the Asian nation of Sri Lanka. Then Twitter, a fascinating tussle is unfolding over this social media giant as billionaire Elon Musk makes a bid to buy it so that he can turn it back into a platform for free speech. It's brought discussion about big tech censorship into the spotlight. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Andrew Miller about this. For our third segment, we'll talk about junk food and its effect on our bodies. Have you ever had a junk food hangover? There are actually some physical parallels between junk food and drugs and other addictive substances. We'll talk about this with personal trainer and holistic nutritionist Jorg Mardian. For the last word on today's show, we'll discuss one of the most important purposes for biblical prophecy. So to begin, Sri Lanka and the economic crisis that could be a preview of things to come for America and other nations. We'll now hear about this in this report from Richard Palmer. Sri Lanka is broken. Thousands queue daily outside petrol pumps for their ration of four gallons of fuel. Armed police by law guard each pump, stopping the fights. Eight hours a day spent queuing in the heat of the day lead to frayed tempers. Some have even died in the queues. Fuel prices have doubled. Vegetables are now five times more expensive than last year. Rice is up 30%. People have a choice. Shop at a private supermarket or spend all day in the queue at a government-run shop where prices can be three or four times lower. At the other end of the scale, farmers can't sell their food. They can't get the fuel to transport them to market. Fuel shortages are also hitting the power industry. The government has ordered 10-hour rolling blackouts. Many are getting on with generators, which just makes the queues for fuel at petrol stations even longer. With prices rocketing up everywhere, everything shuts down. Rickshaw drivers can't afford petrol. They have no income, so they fall behind on their vehicle payments and lose their whole businesses. Print shops can't afford paper, so they close, sending all their workers home. Schools are shut because paper and books are too pricey. With budgets occupied with fuel purchases and basic necessities, people have little money left over for luxuries. Even the middle classes that were once comfortably off are struggling to feed their families. Sellers of non-essential goods no longer have any customers. People that once enjoyed holidays and meals out can no longer afford meat or even hot food. So many are taking to the streets. Sri Lanka is experiencing some of its biggest protests in history. Religious and ethnic tensions that had laid dormant now threaten to explode at any moment. 
The government is trying to crack down on protests by declaring a state of emergency, arresting opponents and censoring what is said online. It's the worst economic crisis in Sri Lanka's history. Perhaps the, but perhaps the most surprising thing about it is that so many of the factors there are also present in the United States. The crisis shows how things that we know are bad, inflation, debt, social division, can become nation-destroying problems. Sri Lanka's politics is dominated by one family, the Rajapaksas. Mahinda Rajapaksa first came to power as president in 2005. He's now the prime minister, while his brother Gotabaya Rajapaksa now holds the presidency. It looks a lot like nepotism, but the family says they're simply choosing the best men for the job. And it just happens to be that about 40 family members are the best qualified for various government jobs. In 2015, the Rajapaksas temporarily lost hold of office. They were accused of fraud and money laundering, stealing government money and stashing it abroad. The Seychelles and Indian governments promised to help track the funds. But then, on Easter Sunday 2019, the country took a very different turn. Islamist bombings killed 270 people. Suddenly, allegations of corruption didn't seem as important. Mahinda Rajapaksa had a reputation as a strongman who won the war with the Tamils, which ended in 2009, a decade earlier. That autumn, the Rajapaksas were back into office. The investigations were shelved. Sri Lanka is a democratic socialist republic with many industries under government ownership, including things like the main electricity company and Sri Lanka Airlines. This gives the government access to a lot of use, lucrative jobs to hand out and a lot of cash. Widespread corruption then opens the door to foreign power. Someone willing to toss out lucrative jobs to family members is also the kind of person willing to channel funds to his hometown to shore up his local support. Under the Rajapaksas, many infrastructure projects were given to China without any form of competitive bidding. They were just handed to Chinese companies who were often paid above market price. Sri Lankan money flooded into what Forbes called the world's emptiest airport, the Matala Rajapaksa International Airport near the Rajapaksa's hometown of Hambantota. Chinese money also helped build the Mahinda Rajapaksa International Cricket Stadium in Hambantota, which holds more seats than the town's centre's population can fill. At the end of Mahinda Rajapaksa's second term of 20, in 2015, nearly 70% of the country's infrastructure projects were funded by China. And all this has been funded by $7 billion borrowed from China. Sri Lanka has become the poster child for China's debt trap diplomacy. China lent Sri Lanka around a billion dollars, for example, to build a new port in, again, Rajapaksa's hometown, Hambantota. And when the port proved unprofitable and Sri Lanka couldn't pay the money back, China took it over on a 99-year lease. Foreign policy wrote that the acquisition provided Beijing with a deep-water port in the region in which it can dock its navy off the coast of its key regional competitor, India. But not all of this money flowed to Beijing. In 2018, the New York Times reported that millions of dollars flowed directly from Chinese port construction funds to the 2015 Rajapaksa re-election campaign. The Chinese ambassador lobbied voters to support China's allies. For years prior to the vote, the Rajapaksas were consistently dogged by accusations they'd taken bribes from Chinese government-controlled companies. Now, spending for all of these programs was fueled by massive debt. In 2010, Sri Lanka's foreign debt was 36% of its annual economic output. By 2015, it was 94%. One third of government revenue that year went to paying off Chinese debt. Now the country owes 51 billion US dollars to foreigners. 
7 billion was due to be paid back this year. But the country only has 1.6 billion of foreign cash on hand. So last week, the government defaulted on part of that debt, declaring, essentially declaring bankruptcy and saying that it cannot afford to pay it back. Now, Sri Lanka has been trying to get a hold of foreign currency to pay off this debt. Meanwhile, potential investors have seen the writing on the walls. They don't want to be holding currency from an economy that's going under. Combine that with massive money printing and the value of the Sri Lankan rupee has plummeted. This has made imports expensive, leading to the explosion in the cost of fuel and hyperinflation. Inflation hit 20% this month. For food, it's 30%. Now, it's clear that there are special causes for this bankruptcy. Sri Lanka generated a lot of foreign income through tourism. When COVID hit, that disappeared. So too did the money that Sri Lankans living overseas sent back to their families, another key source of foreign currency. The government also made things worse, abruptly banning the uh, import of pesticides and forcing the country to switch to organic farming last year. In the long run, moving away from pesticides and herbicides has a lot of advantages, but it's not a change that can easily be made at the drop of the hat. Food output plummeted and the country had to import more, worsening the economic situation. But there are long-term, important long-term causes as well. Sri Lanka's massive borrowing made it fragile, so that when these kind of crises and mistakes were made, the economy just disintegrated. So corruption, dodgy links to China, massive debt, money printing, all these ingredients to total breakdown are present in the United States and many other Western economies. Hunter Biden's dealings with Chinese businesses are reminiscent of some of the, some of the dealings of the Rajapaksas. And of course, all of Hunter's dealings include a cut for the big guy. The U.S. is also borrowing like there's no tomorrow. Compared to the size of the economy, U.S. debt is even bigger than Sri Lanka's. At over 30 trillion U.S. dollars, U.S. debt is 125% of the size of its annual economic output, compared to Sri Lanka's 104%. Generally, anything over 90% is considered the danger zone where an economy risks collapse. Just like Sri Lanka, America imports dramatically more than it exports, having to sell much of its currency to cover the shortfall. And America was also rapidly printing money. About 30% of all dollars in circulation were created since COVID hit. The big difference is the US dollar is the world's reserve currency. Despite a series of horrible decisions, people are still willing to buy it. They need to, to engage in international trade. Even so, inflation is starting to bite at 8.5%. Now, no one thinks that corruption, inflation, or debt are good things, but it's easy to lose sight of just how catastrophically destructive they can be. Sri Lanka shows they have the potential to be nation-destroying problems, and the U.S. is walking down the same path. Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has written, true education is founded on cause and effect. We are doing the same thing that's caused catastrophe in Sri Lanka. Those actions will have the same effect. In January 1920, with the U.S. economy in full boom, statistician Roger Babson forecast the worst business depression that our generation has ever experienced. And he accurately forecast it because his models revolved around cause and effect. He said there are laws that govern economic conditions. These laws are the factors which determine what conditions will be in a few months or a year from now. They are the causes. To forecast the economy, Babson said, I looked at the way people as a whole were dealing with one another. I looked to the source which determined future conditions. I have found that the source may be defined in terms of righteousness. When people are generally behaving rightly, the economy tends to do well in the future. This is a profound observation from a statistician. 
Herbert W. Armstrong related this incident in his autobiography and lauded Babson for this wisdom. Now, it's clear that a lot of immorality and unrighteousness had caused Sri Lanka's collapse, and we are guilty of similar immorality here, and it will have similar effects. Soon all nations will be forced to confront this lesson, but you don't have to wait to learn it. You can apply principles that will cause prosperity in your life now. We have a booklet on that, Solve Your Money Troubles. But this is more than a financial lesson. There is a whole way of life that causes blessings and prosperity, and you can read about that in our free book, Mystery of the Ages. Well, thank you very much for that, Richard. That comparison that you made between the United States and Sri Lanka uh, is quite potent when you're talking about corruption uh, and that quote from Roger Babson about the dangers in immoral business dealings. Uh, I just wonder what sort of evidence do you look at when you when you say corruption in the United States is really positioning us for economic crisis? And I think one of the ones that's most notable right now is everything going on around Hunter, Hunter Biden. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a when we're looking at what's happening in Ukraine and things like that, we were having to ask all these questions about is Joe Biden acting in America's best interest or has he been bought out by by foreign politicians? And a good part of those questions come because you've got the president's son uh, going and, and doing these big dis- business deals with Burisma in, in Ukraine. You've got uh, everything surrounding Uranium One and Hillary Clinton doing some very dodgy deals that involve Russia and Moscow and Vladimir Putin. Uh, and then you've got, of course, China and all of those companies trace back to Xi Jinping, ultimately, and the Chinese Communist Party that have been f- funneling money to Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden has talked about how some of that money goes to the big guy, uh, so you've got all of these possibilities of just like in in uh, in Hong Kong. I mean, just like in Sri Lanka, where foreign powers can manipulate things and governments may be making the decisions not in terms of what's best for the country, but what's best for them. And ultimately, what is best for some other country, because those politicians are um, receiving kickbacks. I also think there are things that are maybe. Say not illegal they wouldn't land you in jail, but are still should be labeled corruption and are very common in the United States. For example, one way, one time I came across this a lot is looking into, say, American defense projects, things like the F-35. So when they decided and when they're looking down and Lockheed Martin and these, these defense companies are looking at uh, how do we what do we want to design as the next gen- next fighter jet for America, as the next American staple for the Air Force? The, some of the big questions that they're asking and some of the design decisions are driven not by the question of what will make the best plane and what is best for the Air Force, but which jobs do we need to create uh, or which congressional districts do we need to create jobs in? And so, okay, what bits can we stick on the plane? We've got here are the list of companies that operate in so-and-so's political district. To get this through Congress, we probably need to create about 500 jobs in that guy's district. What can we stick on this plane that is going to create jobs in that guy's district? Hmm. Uh, because, and they're, you know, they're a private company, but they're responding to the way that Congress votes. 
And so you see what Sri Lanka is doing with things like its Hambantota port, where you have this whole port project that, that is revolved around not economic interests, not the needs of the country, but instead we've got a politician and we need to support his constituency. Uh, and it leads to these radically skewed priorities and money, you know, massive debt being chalked up for things that ultimately aren't even useful and there's no payback. You see exactly the same thing going on throughout the United States. And, and that, you know, the F-35, that's just one pretty, I mean, it's a big example, I guess. It was, I think it's one of the biggest American military contracts in history, or it is the biggest. Uh, but at the same time, it's just a small example in terms of how often this goes on, where decisions are being made due to petty self-interest uh, and money is being misdirected, leading to, to potentially billions in, in, or more in, in wasted funds. Yeah, those are very good examples. I, I guess the, uh, the the example about how you have Chinese politicians who are aggressively uh, trying to buy off Sri Lankan politicians, it's one thing when you have politicians who are willing to sell out to foreign interests. It's another when you have uh, notably aggressive foreign politicians who are actively trying to buy out politicians. And in the case of the, this comparison you're making between Sri Lanka and the United States, it's the same politicians. It's Chinese officials who are spending money for access uh, to to the politicians in the country. I think even with uh, with all of the examples that you're looking at, there would still be people who who just would not see a poor or less developed country like Sri Lanka as being an example that would that we could really expect the same kind of thing to unfold in America, even with these factors lining up that you have described. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what Bible prophecy says to suggest this is actually a legitimate comparison. Sure. I mean, first, I think you know things aren't going to play out necessarily in exactly the same way, and certainly it's much easier for a less developed country and, and Sri Lanka still was relatively prosperous, but it's still easier for, for a country in that position to kind of slide into bankruptcy than it would be for someone like the United States. At the same time, it's also more catastrophic when the, a big economy falls. So you know, I think just the point that we made about cause and effect is an important one. But you're right, the Bible does have a lot specifically to say about a massive shift in, in global economy. And we're getting back to cause and effect. Ultimately, the Bible says that the cause for American prosperity is blessings and blessings from God. And this is something that American politicians even used to acknowledge. You know, Abraham Lincoln uh, spoke eloquently about how America's gifts came because not because of things they'd earned, but blessings from God. Uh, and some of that was given in the form some of those blessings. You know, part of those blessings were, say, just leaders that uh, did keep certain financial laws. Uh, and uh, you know, follow certain principles, but ultimately these were these were blessings from God. And the Bible says that these will be taken away. The Bible ha then goes on to describe a different power that God is rising up. Revelation 17 describes in military terms this power. Revelation 18 goes on to describe in economic terms this power. So God says he's going to take away these blessings that he's given to, to Britain and America in our free book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy, talks about where these get blessings came from, how they're already being taken away. And then instead, 
a new economic power is going to raise up in Europe. And you're going to have a new, you know, um, an Herbert W. Armstrong talked about how you'd have an economic crisis. And that would play a major role in this European economic power coming together, uh, replacing America with a new economic system. So the Bible tells us how this is going to, to play out as well over the next oh, oh, in, in the future. Well, thank you very much, Richard. We've been talking with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about economic crisis in Sri Lanka. He wrote a trumpet brief about this. This should be going out uh, later today. The title of that, Could America Soon Look Like Sri Lanka? Go check out that article and just look at the conditions that are prevailing in this Asian nation to see uh, a preview of what may be happening in America and in other nations. Thanks again so much, Richard. We appreciate your insights. Great to be here. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Will billionaire Elon Musk buy Twitter and stop its censoring conservative voices and turn it back into a free speech platform? We'll hear about this in a report from Andrew Miller. Only four years ago, Project Veritas caught Twitter staffers on hidden camera admitting that their company censored conservative speech using shadow banning. The policy manager of Twitter's Trust and Safety Council told an undercover reporter that the company was working on ways to ensure that specific people did not show up in Twitter users' information feeds. And a direct messaging engineer told another undercover reporter that the company was flagging tweets that mentioned God or America. Yet for many prominent Democrats, this shadow banning is not enough. Barack Obama noted on April 6 that there is a demand for crazy on the internet before suggesting that tech companies enact regulatory measures to halt toxic information. Obama is now partnering with campaign strategist David Axelrod to save democracy from misinformation. Yet many Americans believe the type of censorship Obama is advocating is a greater threat to democracy than toxic information. Billionaire tech mogul Elon Musk gave a TED Talk only one week after Obama spoke about disinformation's threat to democracy. And his statements were the opposite of Obama's comments. Musk announced that he wants to buy Twitter, privatize it, and turn it into a bastion of free speech. And here's a clip from Musk's interview with Chris Anderson. This is, a, this is not a, a, a way to sort of make money, you know. I think this is, it's just that I think this is, um, this could, my, my strong intuitive sense is that uh, having a public platform that is maximally trusted um, and, 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 and broadly inclusive um, is extremely important to the future of civilization. Many conservatives hope Elon Musk will reactivate Donald Trump's Twitter account if he purchases the company, as Trump has been banned from Twitter ever since Michelle Obama wrote a letter instructing America's tech companies to stop enabling this monstrous behavior. Yet Trump has insisted he will probably not return to Twitter, even if Musk can buy it, because Twitter's become very boring. 
So whether or not Musk can buy Twitter, the battle over free speech will intensify. Obama knows the only way to stop Americans from finding out about election fraud is to censor those speaking about it. Meanwhile, Trump, Musk, and their allies know that the only way to preserve America's constitutional republic is to protect the First Amendment right to free speech enshrined in the Constitution. The U.S. Department of Justice and the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission launched an investigation into Musk business dealings after he purchased a 10% stake in Twitter. Yet some analysts think the Biden administration wants revenge against Musk for challenging its monopoly on determining accountable speech. Among these analysts is Fox News's Tucker Carlson, who said the following on April 14th. This is a company that exists to censor speech. That's its whole purpose. The Biden administration certainly understands this, and they've already made a move to intimidate Musk into backing off. Fox Business's Charlie Gasparino is reporting tonight that, quote, as Elon Musk offers to buy the rest of Twitter, a legal source tells Fox Business that the SEC and the DOJ have launched what he described as a joint investigation into a myriad of Musk regulatory issues, primarily involving Tesla. In other words, threaten to allow people to speak freely and we'll crush your businesses. Many Democrats feel like Washington Post columnist Max Boo, who said, I am frightened by the impact on society and politics if Elon Musk acquires Twitter. He seems to believe that on social media, anything goes. For democracy to survive, we need more content moderation, not less. So these Democrats want to win the battle of ideas by ensuring they are the only ones allowed to speak. Musk is right to warn that censorship poses a civilizational risk. If left-wing activists and a few swing districts can steal an election with fraudulent ballots and then hide behind tech companies that prevent people from broadcasting the truth, America is not truly a democratic republic. In the words of Dr. Peter Navarro, we have moved dangerously in what seems like a nanosecond from a full and vibrant American democracy to a communist, Chinese-style, cancel culture police state guarded by a collective social media oligopoly that is beyond our control. Yet despite the power that America's communist-style cancel culture police state wields over what people watch and read, Bible prophecy indicates that the 2020 election will be overturned. Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry explained in his article, What Will Happen After Trump Regains Power, that President Trump will return to power, but the indication is that regaining office may take considerable work. Donald Trump will have to fight for it. It doesn't have to be military action, but it certainly could. President Trump could also lead some states to secede from the Union. Now, this astonishing forecast is based on a prophecy in 2 Kings 14, verses 26 through 28 which says, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all he did, and his might, how he warred, and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah for Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Obama is leading an attempt to blot out the constitutional virtues that made America great 
But Donald Trump is a type of King Jeroboam II. God is using him to temporarily save America from the forces seeking to destroy it, even though Americans do not deserve this mercy. But Trump will have to fight because the big tech companies, the legacy media, and the establishment politicians are all against him. So keep watching America's censorship wars. Thank you very much, Andrew. I do believe the way that the left has responded to this takeover bid from Elon Musk, it shows just how unhinged they have become. I mean, I, they're accusing him. I, I saw one clip on, on MSNBC where they said that Elon Musk is a white supremacist and that he's actually pining for the glory days of apartheid in South Africa and trying to bring that to, uh, to America. Uh, I mean, just absolutely nonsensical, illogical statements, or they're saying that this is a classic move of dictators and authoritarians, that they, they're, they're always trying to open up free speech and people to just say whatever they want to say. Uh, you had the, the one quote from the one, the one individual who said, we actually need more control over speech, not less, in order to preserve our democracy. These are truly bizarre statements yeah it is really bizarre especially i i find it ironic the fact that like up until just recently it didn't seem like the radical left had much against elon musk i mean the only time right. you heard about him was when um i mean the the transportation secretary was telling us how that we can all solve the rising fuel prices crisis if we all go out and buy a tesla right and so it seemed like that the biden administration had a lot invested in musk because they wanted to buy all his teslas and so he can stop using gas-powered cars and so it's been a really kind of turned on a dime and like i said it is just bizarre i mean i think i've seen articles i mean from the more left-wing magazine like salon or the guardian just talking about how dictatorial and demagogic and uh, authoritarian is that Musk wants to buy Twitter and stop censoring people. Basically, it's like anyone who believes in freedom means that we need a, a board of directors at Twitter that can shadow ban people at will, which, mm-hmm. I mean, just, you just stop and think about it for a you minute. You don't have I to mean, stop for... And think about it too much to know that that doesn't make any sense yeah, whatsoever. Even, even Barack Obama's comments about like we we need to like censor more information to save democracy, and it's like, it's like I'm pretty sure that like the last time I unless, unless the Oxford English Dictionary I haven't seen the 2022 edition, but the the old one used to say that like democracy was like rule by the people. Mm-hmm. Not, and then you're talking about like, well, if the people make a bad decision, we just need to make sure that we're controlling what information they hear. It's like that doesn't sound like saving democracy. That sounds like uh, transforming America into an oligarchy or a technocracy or a right. socialist central planning committee. It's like the person fighting for democracy is Elon Musk. Is like he's like just let the information out there and let your average voter decide what they want to do. I, I find it fascinating that uh, Elon Musk, you look at the kinds of projects that he pours his energies into, and he really has transformed the automotive industry. He's trying to create rockets that will enable the human race to populate Mars. He's a big thinker. You know, he's, he's 
he's uh, digging tunnels so that we can reduce traffic in major cities. The fact that he's he's putting this much of his wealth on the line, his reputation, even you know his ability to conduct business internationally on this bid to try to uh, save a social media platform to be a, a place where people can discuss ideas openly without fear of big tech censorship just shows how important he thinks this is. I mean, he, he said that he feels like this really is uh, important for the preservation of civilization. Yeah, he called it a civilizational threat and emphasized throughout that TED talk that he's like, I'm not making money on right. this. He's like, he's like, actually, he said, I'm, he said the only reason, the only way he might be able to pull this off is by basically paying far more a share than mm-hmm. Twitter's worth yeah. and, and trying to get the board of directors to put their financial interest above their political ideology. Uh, but by doing this is that he, he's probably going to lose. <laughs> I mean, he's, he, he's the richest man on earth. He can afford to lose a little, but he's definitely going to lose um, some money on this because he thinks this is what's necessary to preserve the United States as a democratic republic. Well, it's definitely uh, brought these questions right out into uh, the public discourse. And like so many other things that have taken place over this last year, it's exposing a great number of people for the authoritarians that they that they really are, the way that they think. It's, it's just being revealed in uh, an extraordinary way. We've been talking with trumpet writer Andrew Miller about Elon Musk's bid to purchase Twitter. He's written an article about this. It's called Billionaire Tech Mogul Elon Musk Says Twitter Undermines Democracy. That should be up on the website soon. If it's not there already, go check it out at thetrumpet.com. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks for having me. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. Do you ever feel terrible when you wake up in the morning? There are a lot of reasons why this can happen. One of them is the sluggish, bloated feeling that comes from eating too much junk food. If you've ever experienced a junk food hangover, you have had firsthand experience showing how you are what you eat. To talk about this, we have via Skype from his office in British Columbia, holistic nutritionist and personal trainer, Jorg Mardian. Hello, Jorg. Hello there. The junk food hangover. How, how does junk food mimic a hangover, Jorg? Well, junk food, as the name implies, is junk. So it runs the gamut from, from sickly sweet to salty, or it's heavy on rancid or trans fats. So basically, it just has junk in it. And uh, as, as you stated, it leads to that phenomenon called junk food hangover. It's, it's an actual reminder the next day that our appetite has overwhelmed our common sense. We've eaten too much of this stuff. And so what ends up happening is that we get a lot of digestive discomfort, um, cramping, gas, you know, constipation. These are all signals that the food that we just ate is just infused with artificial flavors, ingredients, with toxins, 
And it's just not a good idea to eat this type of stuff. And that's what these uh, um, discomforts and tell us, you know, for example, uh, unhealthy fats. Um, they pose several problems to us because there's just a sh through the sheer amount of unhealthy fats like trans fats, rancid fats and and saturated fats. And sometimes we get about uh, 100 grams or more in some meals, which is a staggering amount. And it can cause a delay in in gastric emptying. So it sticks around in the intestines far too long. And that's where we get that bloated, gassy feeling that leads to indigestion and heartburn the next day. And it can be pretty bad. Mm. Um, salt is another ingredient that's, um, you know, it, it's, there's just too much of it in there because if you didn't have salt in this food, it would taste like cardboard, you know. Now, the problem with that is salt makes you dehydrated. I mean, just that amount of salt. So the brain is about um, three quarters, 73 to 75% water. So with all that excess salt, you know, you, 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 your brain tissue loses water. And that causes us to shrink away and pull away from the skull. And that triggers pain receptors. And so we get a headache. Now the dehydration, there's another way as well. It causes a blood volume to drop and that lowers the oxygen flow and, and the blood to the brain. So in response, you know, you, your blood vessels dilate, you get inflammation and swelling and your headache becomes worse. Hmm. So that's another symptom that you get the next day. Um, but that's not all. Um, there's more goodness in this stuff. <laughs> uh, sugar and refined carbs, you know, they're going to add to that hangover misery. Uh, we, in, in junk food, we get hefty doses of white breads, pastas, um, cereals, sugary drinks. I mean, whatever you, you know, you go to any 7-Eleven um, or, or any any store, convenience store, and you get this stuff. I mean, 70, 80, 90% of that food is like that. And it's going to give us that surge of initial energy. We feel good right away. But then your blood sugar drops and you start feeling cranky, irritable, and tired. So, and those are three of the big ones. Now, wrapped in all of this junk food, of course, are chemicals. You know, chemicals, they preserve the food and they enhance flavors. And very few of these are not harmful. You know, like the plastic wrapping has a lot of chemicals in it. Mm. And, and, the, and uh, what makes the boxes waterproof, those are all chemicalized. Uh, flavor enhancers like MSG, they give us headaches the next day as well. I mean, there's about 3,000 food chemicals purposely added to our food supply. So what we have then is a concoction of salt, um, sugar, and fat, all excesses, all harmful. And as well, they're mixed in with this concoction of chemicals. And, uh, you know, the next day we wake up and we have a, a, a throbbing hangover. So uh, maybe you can help me to understand this. Uh, when you eat healthy and you have junk food, it almost seems like in, in some ways you're more sensitive to some of those symptoms that you're describing. It seems like there are a whole lot of people that eat that all the time, and it's kind of like uh, they just seem to, I don't know, they develop a certain amount of immunity to it or, or something, or they, they don't know just how sick they are. 
but where when someone isn't accustomed to that it seems like it hits you even harder oh absolutely what you're talking about is a tolerance it's not an immunity i mean people walk around half dead i talk about it with my clients all the time when we start to get people to uh, detox and they they you know they're eating good for two or three weeks and they go back to a burger a burger mm-hmm. i mean it's just the, the feelings are intensified they say they're so sick the next day uh, like they've never felt before even when they ate more before mm-hmm. you know so yeah th- tolerance is a terrible thing because we believe that when we're walking around in a tolerant state we're healthy we we believe that's the way to be yeah we don't have energy to walk around. We, I mean, many people get so tired at three o'clock in the afternoon and they, and, and I hear that from my clients all the time. So they have to get into energy drinks or they have to get into coffees or something that stimulates them so they can make it by in the afternoon, you know, and, and there's ramifications to these foods. I mean, they hook us, don't they? You know, and, and really what it comes down to is three small words. And, and it's called a, a, a bliss point. Yeah. And and that's what hooks us. And that's what we can't get away from, despite how we feel. And that's just the, the perfect amount of salt, sugar, and fat in products that drive us into that crazy craving. You know, we, we can't stop it, despite feeling so tired and achy and, and irritable. And And... You know, researchers are looking at the possibility that this may be more than just a craving because the the chemical effects of foods are remarkably similar to hard drugs in their addictive potential. And they overstimulate that reward center of the brain to release excess dopamine. And that's what gives us that sense of pleasure. You know, you eat a food and you feel really good. But just like with a drug, if you eat this all the time like you were talking about you know you're going to need more of it just to get that same feeling you previously had Mm -hmm. you never walk around feeling good and that's what they call tolerance now if you go without that junk food fix you're going to feel bad and that's what's called withdrawal Uh uh-huh same same physiologically essentially the same thing that is happening with uh, with drugs. You you mentioned the the bliss point. I I, I read that book, uh, Salt, Sugar, Fat, by Michael Moss, where he kind of went into the bowels of the uh, food processed food industry and interviewed all of these executives who are you know they're trying to find that exact exact combination of all of those ingredients to maximize profits, and they're obviously. Uh, oblivious to concerns regarding the health of their their customers they don't eat the stuff themselves because they know uh that it's it's not going to do them any good uh but that addictive quality that's actually something they rely on because they need it for profitability oh exactly it's just a different substance than a hard drug and the social consequences may be less severe but both substances to still increase a person's risk of premature death. Hmm. It just depends on when it happens. We know drugs kill. We know junk food kills. It's not even open to debate. It's just when it happens. Some, with some people, it happens quite quickly early on in life just be, with the amount that they eat. You know, There's a study that says that after only seven days of high sugar and high fat meals, 
your appetite controls are just loosened. I mean, you have no control over them. Mm-hmm. Your cravings are out of control. Even when you're not hungry, you still want this stuff and your mood just flattens. I mean, you're just not in a good mood anymore. And then beyond those effects, you, you have, see, these are nutritionally devoid foods. They're energy rich, they're calorie rich, and they have serious long-term implications with every disease imaginable. So this is something that uh, most people fall into these kinds of addictions unwittingly because this food is so omnipresent and really it's cheap, uh, it's convenient, it has everything that we... Uh, that we crave and even the taste and all of those things are engineered specifically to keep us keep us hooked on them talk about breaking free of those addictions how do you get i mean we've been talking about hangovers we've been talking about the kind of addiction that you would have to alcohol or drugs Uh, how do you break free of that when you talk about processed food Right. So when you just getting back to when you said most people are hooked on it, well, there's a reason for that as well, because uh, 60% of, of the North America's calorie intake is from this stuff. So this is beyond hook. This is what we eat mostly, mm. you know. And so what happens then is, is we get this failing health, we get failing life quality and our, our intelligence drops and that that's been proven as well through studies mm. and then of course you know eventually it can lead to death so we want to quit we want to withdraw the best thing to do is to withdraw as as fast as you can but like any drug that's hard to do that that immediate withdrawal brings severe withdrawal symptoms mm. and, and very few people can, can go through that uh, if you stick with the program your health improves exponentially you know, now, barring total abstinence, you know, eliminate these things slowly from your diet. That's what I tell my clients. Like, let's say you have a really bad coffee habit. Um, eliminate it slowly, day by day. Have a little less, a little less. And, and it, it makes it tolerable. And then start making food switches through meal planning. You know, put some time and effort into planning your meals instead of opening the fridge and seeing a pizza box, you know. <laughs> Um, and you also want to have a staple grocery list so that pizza box doesn't actually make it into your fridge. Right. So you have these healthy foods to stay prepared for things that come up at the last minute. And that's the problem, right? We're, we're hungry, come, come home from work and what's in the fridge. Mm-hmm. So we, we want to have foods prepared. Prepping on a Sunday for the week is a great way to do it, having all these little containers ready to go. Mm. Um, so that helps you avoid that mindless snacking and, and eating anything that comes to mind. So you want to you wanna do fresh vegetables, un, unprocessed meats and fish, and, and whole grains like brown rice or oatmeal, not refined grains, because they're, they're just going to add to the burden. And then if you're out at work, you know, stash some healthy snacks in your bag or desk and, and, and make sure you plan dinners ahead of time so that it's your mind that does the planning and not your stomach Mm -hmm. right so you want to decide that menu ahead of time and then focus on balanced foods that help you feel satisfied so you actually want to think about what a food does when i'm eating uh you know i started doing this i said how does this food make me feel 
when I eat it? Does it make me feel good? And and that reduces your risk of food cravings, especially when you balance it against these junk foods. When you eat a burger, think about what it does, a burger and fries. Not just when you're eating it, because then you start to have that feel good, you know, you start feeling really good. But then 20 minutes later, 30 minutes later, when you start to have that down feeling when your blood sugar drops, hmm. if you have that in mind, that helps to reduce those cravings. So you identify patterns to your cravings and you help to avoid the triggers just by paying attention to how healthy foods make you feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's excellent advice. Uh, we always appreciate the uh, the practical tips that you give us. We've been talking with personal trainer and holistic nutritionist Jorg Mardian about the addictive qualities of junk food and how to break free from them. He's working on an article that should appear soon at thetrumpet.com on this subject. As always, Jorg, we really do appreciate your time and your insights. It's been a pleasure. It's time for today's Last Word. Imagine what the Bible would be and what our lives would be without prophecy. Imagine if it was just laws with no warnings and no promises. If it was just history, stories of lives with no real connection to our own lives. Or if it was just bits of poetry and proverbs that didn't point to the future. Imagine having no concept of the punishments God is about to deal out to various nations. No knowledge of the curses that come with disobedience. Imagine not having any descriptions of the blessings for obedience or of what awaits us when we live God's way. Imagine having no idea when Christ would return or even knowing that he would return. Imagine not knowing God's master plan that spells out our future in prophecy. No knowledge of God's future kingdom, no understanding of our becoming God beings. No idea of how God planned to solve the problems of this world. If you had no prophecy, you would really have no vision. God puts a lot of emphasis on prophecy in the Bible. We shouldn't overlook it. God intends prophecy to be an important part of our spiritual diet. I want to look at one reason for this in particular, and that is that prophecy reveals God the Father. Think for a moment about the prophetic image of Daniel 2. This is a preview of centuries, even millennia of history, through the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, Greek, Roman Empires, even to the present day. God inspired this image, and then he brought events to pass over a period of millennia to ensure that they followed that pattern that he laid out. He set up kings, he raised empires, he destroyed kingdoms. This vividly illustrates the truth recorded in Daniel 4 and verse 17. The prophet Daniel says, This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will and sets up over it the basest of men. When we see prophecy being fulfilled like that, It teaches us that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Prophecy shows that God is in control. 
Our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flory, wrote this in his booklet, Daniel Unlocks Revelation. The Daniel 2 image didn't just evolve. How did these great world-ruling kingdoms from the time of Nebuchadnezzar down to the time we live in now take shape like that image? The only way that is possible is if God shaped it and molded it to prove that he rules in the kingdom of men. That image teaches the greatest lesson mankind could possibly learn. God has given man 6,000 years to rule his own way, but still make certain that all events are shaped by his master plan. He forces events to shape the Daniel 2 image and work out his plan. He rules in the kingdom of men today. What a lesson. It shows how involved God is with his creation. It says a lot about him that he would work so hard to demonstrate his supremacy over human affairs. Prophecy helps us to fear and respect God. It teaches us a lot about his character and his will. When he sets his will to do something, he always does it. True prophecy is totally reliable. God's word never fails. You can read in Isaiah 45 and verse 18, For thus says the the eternal that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he has established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the eternal and there is none else. Everything he does, he does with purpose. He has a plan and he has the will to carry it out and the will to see it right through to completion. Verses 22 and 23 of that chapter, Isaiah 45, God says, Look unto me and and be you saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Now, when, when you swear by something, you're staking your life on the reliability of that thing. And God says, I swear by myself. I said it, and it's not going to come back to me. This will happen. God actually tells us not to swear because he knows we we just don't have the character. But he actually swears, and he does so because he is entirely reliable and trustworthy. In Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Why is God able to prophesy? Because only the omnipotent God can say something is going to come to pass and then ensure that it comes to pass, just as he said. The more you think about that, the more it reveals God to you. God has the power to bring it to pass, and he never goes back on his word. This is the foundation of our faith. That, that's a marvelous purpose of prophecy. We can have absolute confidence in the God of prophecy. Like Abraham, it says in Romans 4 and verse 21, we can be fully persuaded that what God has promised, he was also able to perform. That is faith. Jesus Christ said in John 14, I've told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, you might believe. 
as we see prophecies coming to pass, that should really vindicate God in our minds and strengthen our faith. Prophecy reveals what God is doing and what he plans to do. So it teaches us a lot about God the Father. It gives us insight into his plans and his priorities and how he works and who he is. It reveals his master plan. Read the first verse of the book of Revelation. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Prophecy really is the big picture. We, we, we really need that overview. It lets us know where God is going, where he's taking us. It tells us about his future family and where we fit into that big picture. In fact, prophecy is the gospel. Most Christians talk about the gospel like it's, it's good news about something here and now on this earth. The truth is the gospel is actually good news of a coming kingdom of God. He's preparing for it now, but it, this is advanced news, prophecy of how God is actually going to solve the problems of this world. God reveals prophecy, but also prophecy reveals God. This is a critical reason God gave us so much prophecy and why we should make sure it's a regular part of our Bible study. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to my guests, Richard Palmer, Andrew Miller, and Jorg Mardian. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Steve Jobs. Innovation distinguishes between a leader and a follower. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. Listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.